Thank you so much, Pastor David and friends. It's good to be with you this morning to worship the Lord together, to open God's Word together. Thank you for those kind words, Pastor David. I can confirm he is a student. His bills are paid. His assignments have largely been turned in. Uh, rumor has it, so far he has straight A's, okay? And so you should be very proud of his, uh, of his achievements. It is a joy to bring you greetings from Midwestern Seminary in Kansas City, one of six seminaries you own, Southern Baptist own. And we hear a lot of bad news, it seems like, these days from the church and from the culture. But let me give you a word of good news. Over the past 10 years, God has grown your seminary in Kansas City from about 1,000 students to this year we have over 5,000 students enrolled. We are training students from all 50 states and from 64 countries around the world, including, thank you, praise God, including places you've heard of like Pakistan, uh, Afghanistan, Iran, Iraq, Russia, Ukraine, North Korea, and many other countries around the globe. And listen to me clearly. More importantly, every single faculty member believes the Bible is the true Word of God. Every faculty member believes and teaches that Jesus is the only way. Every faculty member teaches and believes and loves the local church and the Great Commission, and you can have confidence in your seminary in Kansas City. So we appreciate your prayers as we go about our work there. I also want to express a word of appreciation. My mom and dad are members here, and so they reflect so fondly on this church. And many of you know my father's been in the hospital the past two months, in and out, and is actually not doing very well at all. So appreciate your prayers and your encouragement that you guys have been giving, have been giving them the past couple of months. Finally, in your Bibles this morning, the gospel of Mark. The gospel of Mark, and we'll be looking together in chapter 4, verses 35 through 41. The gospel of Mark, chapter 4, verses 35 through 41. The title of the sermon is Lord of the Storm. Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41. If you have a Bible with you, I hope you'll keep it open as we'll be referring to these verses again and again throughout the sermon. Mark chapter 4, begin reading with me, please, in verse 35. Scripture records for us that on that day, when evening came, Jesus said to them, let us go over to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him along with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And there arose a fierce gale of wind. And the waves were breaking over the bow of the boat, so much that the boat was filling up with water. Jesus himself was in the stern. He was asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and they said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he got up and he rebuked the wind and he rebuked the sea. And he said, Hush, be still. The wind died down, and it became perfectly calm. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? How is it that you have no faith? And they then became very much afraid and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Let us pray. Father, we bow this moment in worship. 
And Father, we come to these verses and we believe that this is your word, that is true, inspired by your spirit, and for us, fully inerrant, and to be authoritative over our lives. And Father, I pray this morning that we have ears to hear, hearts to receive these verses today. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Imagine with me you're in ancient Rome in the first century. Because that is exactly who the gospel of Mark is written to. Mark is writing under the leadership and mentorship of Peter. John Mark is writing to believers in Rome who are gathering under intense persecution. And not just any believers, but the believers he's writing to are primarily Gentile believers, non-Jewish believers who've come to faith there in the region of Rome. And we know that as John Mark is writing this letter to them, that believers there in Rome are experiencing intense persecution. Nero came to power in AD 54, and his first few years of his reign were relatively calm, but then, but then Nero began to become increasingly out of his mind, so much so that in AD 64, Rome burned largely to the ground. And many historians believe that Nero himself is behind the burning of his own city. But that is not politically popular if you're a leader. And so what Nero did in the aftermath of that great burning is he began to blame this sect of individuals known as Christians. And Nero pointed the finger at these believers and said, These Christians, these are the ones who have burned our city. And so Christians went from being not just strange, not just religious zealots, not just these individuals gathering to worship this one named Jesus, not just folks who were, who were living a different lifestyle from other pagans in Rome, but they went from being strange to being dangerous. And so Nero began to order Christians to be burned at the stake. Christians became lampposts lit on fire at night throughout the cities of Rome. Christians began to be fed to wild beasts and to feral dogs. Christians began to be placed in the Colosseum to fight one another and to face gladiators put to death for the entertainment purposes of ancient Roman citizens. And so believers then began to flee Rome. But those who stayed in Rome began to hide in Rome, and they began to gather in these ancient catacombs, these underground burial chambers for individuals who died in ancient Rome. And you can go to Rome these days, and you can tour these catacombs. And these underground dark chambers where skeletons and bones would be stacked, believers were gathering there under candlelight to come together to gather to pray, and to gather to worship, and to encourage one another. And every time they would gather, and one of the other believers weren't there in that gathering. They weren't wondering if they were home with COVID or at the beach for the weekend. They were wondering if they had been put to death by Nero. It's with fear, with uncertainty, with the specter of death before them and around them that every time they gather, they're there trembling together. They're in darkness. They're gathering by candlelight, and many of them are wondering Is it worth it? They're wondering, is this Jesus that we've placed our faith in, this Jesus in whose name our spouses and our children and our parents and our friends are dying over, is he worthy of our worship? Is he worthy of our faith? Is he worthy of our lives? Is he worthy of our death? Mark sent them this letter. 
this gospel of Mark. And it shows up to these believers gathering to worship and they're reading and they're reminded from the get-go of this book, from the first chapter and the first verse, that this Jesus is the one the prophets had spoken of. This Jesus is the one who is indeed the Son of God. This Jesus is the one who is sovereign over demons, sovereign over disease, sovereign over the elements, sovereign over life, sovereign over over the Pharisees, sovereign over their Sabbath expectations, and yes, sovereign over death, and in this passage, sovereign over the forces of nature as well. We enter this passage this morning, Mark chapter 4, verse 35, we enter into it, and it began really in chapter 3, verse 20. If you have your, you have your Bibles open, and again, please keep them open, flip back with me to chapter 3, verse 20. That's when the day began, and Jesus is in Capernaum, He's been in Capernaum. Capernaum is this city on the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee. And Capernaum became Jesus' adopted hometown and the hub of his ministry. Remember, his own did not receive him as Nazareth. Jesus famously said, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown. Hoping that's not true of me this morning. So Jesus migrates to Capernaum. And his ministry is based out of Capernaum, this fishing town, this fishing village on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. And in chapter 3, verse 20, Jesus undertakes, begins to undertake what is a massive day of ministry. The Pharisees come. They accuse him of conducting these healings and teaching with such power under the inspiration and power, not of the Spirit, not of his own divinity, but of demons himself. And Jesus famously rebukes them and says, Satan cannot be divided. Complicating matters all the more, Jesus, his mother, and his siblings migrate to Capernaum the same day in these verses. And they come from, from, from Nazareth to Capernaum, and it says to seize them because they are worried about him, because they have heard about the, the, the buzz that his ministry has created, and they know the Pharisees are plotting to take him, and they know that Jesus is beginning to be the subject of threats, and so they are coming to take him, and they're telling people, ignore what he's saying because he's lost his mind. That's in chapter 3. Then in chapter 4, Jesus steps into the boat, perhaps a boat owned by Peter. This boat we'll see again shortly. He steps into the boat, and he gets a little space off into the Sea of Galilee. And there he's in that boat, and he's seated. And New Testament scholars believe at this point there are over 10,000 followers, perhaps tens of thousands of followers there in Galilee who've stampeded to Galilee, have stampeded to Capernaum, there to hear him preach and to hear him teach and to behold his miracles. And so there Jesus is in this boat, perhaps 50, perhaps 100 yards into the sea, they're seated with thousands of peoples standing on the shore of Galilee. They're listening to him teach as Jesus in chapter 4 delivered these parables to them. But now night is falling. When we, by the time we get to verse 35, after this long day of ministry, night is falling. And Jesus then tells his disciples, we need to move away. We need to get rest. We need to reboot for the next day of ministry, which would pick up on the, on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And so verse 35, as we enter in this text, we begin to see the raging storm on the sea. Notice verse 35. On that day, when evening came... He said to them, let us go over to the other side of the sea. There's there's an action here in this verb. He says, let's go. We need to get moving. And so Jesus is there in the boat. And as we see here, there are multiple boats, evidently. And these are likely boats owned by Peter or Jesus' other disciples who are fishermen there based out of Capernaum. They're in the boats. Dusk is setting. Jesus is hungry. 
Jesus is tired. Jesus has ministered all day. So they begin to take a break, and they're going to sail away to the other side, to the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. And what begins to unfold in these verses is a gripping account of our Lord's sovereignty over the storm. Now, to understand what's taking place, we need, to, we need to make sure we're clear about three realities. First of all, what is this boat? Second of all, what is this sea? And third of all, what is this storm that's breaking loose? What is the boat? Well, Jesus is in a fishing boat, and we know a lot about fishing boats in, in the ancient, uh, ancient area there around Galilee. In fact, if you ever go to, on a Holy Land tour and you ever go to Capernaum, which if you take a Holy Land tour, you'll most likely go to Capernaum. If you go there, there's a museum in Capernaum, and, and in this museum, they actually have a boat that was unearthed a few decades ago by archaeologists, and these aren't like, you know, evangelical archaeologists who, are, who have a, a bias to, to want a boat from the times of Jesus. No, these are, these are world-renowned archaeologists who are digging all the time there because that's the cradle of civilization. And you go there, you'll see a boat that, that these archaeologists discovered a few decades ago, and it's, it's there assembled largely in this museum, and you can behold it. The boat has been dated through carbon-14 dating, and it dates back to the early 1st century A.D., the, the time of Jesus. And the boat itself is about 27 feet long. It's a wooden boat, as you would imagine. It's about 27 feet long. The, the sides are about, about 4 to 5 feet high, and, and it's a V-hole in shape. And, and it, it, it would have been powered sometimes by oars, but, but largely by sails. And, and it's understood to be a common fishing boat from that era. So Jesus and his disciples are in a boat something like that. 25, perhaps 30 feet long, wooden, sides 3 to 4 feet high, powered or, or moved most, most commonly by sail. Having oars, yes, but most commonly by sail, and it is a, a V-hull type boat. And so that is the type of boat that Jesus and his disciples most likely are in. But it's not just the boat, it's the sea that comes into focus here, the Sea of Galilee. Now, if you read the Gospels much, and I, I trust you do, if you read the Gospels much, you'll notice the Sea of Galilee shows up all the time, and the region of Galilee shows up all the time, but that is where Jesus spent the bulk of his time, in the region of Galilee. In fact, in the Bible, in the Gospels, we see literally thousands of miracles referenced in the Gospels. But we only see 37 that are like a specific story of this healing or this moment or this resurrection that's detailed as a distinct event. Of those 37 miracles that Jesus performed in the Gospels that are specific miracles performed, about 30 of those happen either on, in, or by the Sea of Galilee. So what is this sea? First of all, it's kind of a misnomer. It's actually not a sea. It's a big lake. The Sea of Galilee is a big lake. It's known in our Bibles and other places as the Lake of Tiberias and other names as well. And it's to the north, it's to the north, about, uh, about 65 miles north of Jerusalem is the Sea of Galilee. And the Sea of Galilee is fed water-wise from the Jordan River that, that flows down from mountains to the north of, and the Jordan River flows into the Sea of Galilee. And then it flows out of the Sea of Galilee and runs down by Jerusalem till it terminates down in the Dead Sea. The Sea of Galilee is about, is about 13 miles north to south and about, about 7 miles from, from east to west. And its deepest parts is about 140 feet deep. And it's a beautiful, vibrant, freshwater lake. It is now. It was then. 
Fishing was a major industry then. Fishing is a major industry now. It is a lake that is, you can kind of think of it like perhaps, say, Lake Martin here in the state of Alabama. It's beautiful. It's clean. It's fresh. Uh, You can swim in the Sea of Galilee. I've swam in the Sea of Galilee. You can do it all. It's a beautiful lake. The Sea of Galilee, however, was subject to and is subject to intense storms. Sea of Galilee sits about 600 feet below sea level, making it the the largest freshwater lake that far below sea level in the world. And so what takes place on the Sea of Galilee then, it takes place now, is, is you have, it's so low, it's surrounded by ravines and mountains and canyons, and cold air will come down off the Hebron Mountains and off the Golan Heights, and that cold air will come down and will begin to, to swoop through those ravines and, and swoop through those valleys and create a tunnel-like effect, and, and in an instant, violent storms will kick up. And the Sea of Galilee can go, again, then and now, from being placid and as flat as this floor, to in a moment, violent storms raging. In fact, just a couple years ago, there was a major storm on it that sank a number of boats. Uh, The the, the sea raged to about 10-foot waves on this lake just a few years ago. Well, 10-foot waves would overwhelm any fishing boat in Jesus' day. In fact, five-foot waves would be more than a boat like that was designed to withstand. So that's the boat. That's the sea. Now, what about this storm? Notice verse 36. They leave the crowd. They took Jesus along with them in the boat, just as he was in other boats are with them. So there are a couple other boats. Evidently, these are perhaps other disciples or who knows, maybe some, 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 some of the crowds following along, like ancient paparazzi, to, to, to just see what's going on, to, to spectate all the miracles Jesus is performing. But Jesus is in this boat with his disciples. Again, we know that, that, that nearly half of Jesus' disciples were, were fishermen, so they knew these boats well. They knew the Sea of Galilee well. They knew how to maneuver the boats and how to sail the boats. They're, they're veterans. They're, they're salts, we might say. And so they're in the boats, and they begin to sail over about six or seven miles to the eastern side of, of the Sea of Galilee. And notice verse 37, there arose a fierce gale. That cool air began to sweep down from the Golan Heights against the flow to those valleys and through those ravines. The tunnel effect sets in, and in a moment, those waves begin to kick up. But it's not just any storm. Verse 37 tells us it is a fierce gale. Your Bible might have the word mega storm. Luke says that wind descended on the lake. Matthew uses the Greek word seismos that we get the word for earthquake from. So this is a picture of a violent storm raging on the Sea of Galilee. It's unexpected. It was not anticipated. Waves are rampaging. And here they are in this boat. Notice we're told in verse 37 that waves are breaking over the boat. Luke and Matthew add color. Luke and Matthew tell us the boat is taking wave after wave over the bow. The disciples are soaked and it's a scene of sheer terror. There is no lifeboat. There are no life preservers. 
There is no Coast Guard to call. There's no rescue operation to hope for. Here they are on the Sea of Galilee. Imagine you're there. You're sailing across. The air begins to cool. The sky begins to darken. The moon starts hiding. The wind starts howling. The waves start rampaging. The boats sinking. The sails tattering. The disciples are perishing. And Jesus sleeping. Jesus is sleeping. It's a scene of sheer terror, of absolute mayhem. The disciples are scared to death. They think they're perishing. They're frantically bailing. They're trying to hang on for dear life. And in the back of the boat, Jesus is asleep. How is he sleeping through this storm? I'll tell you how he's sleeping. First of all, in the ancient world, they were far more accustomed to the elements than we are. They lived life outside. These sailors lived life from the Sea of Galilee. They knew what it was like to be rained on. They knew what it was like to experience a storm. They knew what it was like to be out in the elements. Most of life was lived out in the elements. Second of all, they are in this boat, and Jesus is in the stern of the boat. And the stern of the boat, if you want to sleep, is the most appropriate place to try to sleep because the bow will toss to and fro, but the stern is less moved. And so Jesus is in the stern of this boat. And in Jesus' humanity, he is worn out. He has ministered all day. He's preached. He's healed. He's managed the crowds. He's worn out, and he's in the back of this boat. And if you've ever tried to sleep in the back of the boat, out in the gulf, when you're dead tired, and even if it's bouncing some, it is possible to sleep sleep through a storm. The first spray of water in the face jolts you. The hundredth doesn't even register. And so this is where Jesus is. What is more, he trusts his father. He has a clear conscience. He has the recipe for him to be asleep. And so there he is in the back of this boat, sleeping like a baby, we might say, as it's rocking, as the waves are crashing, as the wind is blowing, and as his disciples are panicked. Now look with me closely. Notice verse 38. Jesus himself was in the stern. He's asleep on the cushion. And notice verse 38. They, they woke him and they said to him, teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? So you can imagine that they're scared spitless. They think they're about to die. And finally, you know, they're bailing They're hanging on, and it's registering them like, we don't care how tired you are. We don't care how seasick you are. We need you to help, either help to bail or to put a stop to all this altogether through your divine power. But we need you to wake up. Interestingly here, verse 38 records they call him teacher. Matthew says they called him Lord. Luke says they called him Master. And some critics of Scripture will say, well, there you go. The Bible has an error because because Mark says they called him Teacher. And Matthew says they called him Lord. And Luke says they called him Master. No, the picture is it is a scene of absolute mayhem. And some are yelling Teacher. And some are yelling Jesus. And some are yelling Messiah. And some disciples are yelling Lord. And some are yelling Master. And perhaps others are yelling names we can't record in Holy Writ right? And notice what they say to him, verse 38. Teacher, 
Do you not care that we are perishing? It is a thinly veiled rebuke. It's a rebuke. And by the way, there's a lot of rebuking going on in these verses. We have four rebukes in seven verses as we're about to see. They wake him up with their rebuke. Teacher, don't you care that we are perishing? What do you do with that? There's no hurt like someone accusing you of not caring, especially if you do care and if you have cared and if you've went to great expense and great effort because you do care. Don't you care These verses land, and this phrase, excuse me, this phrase lands in the ears of Jesus in a way that you can imagine him processing and saying, don't I care? All that he has done for them and all that he is about to do for them to pay the debt of their sins on Mount Calvary, of course he cares. We had, our kids were younger, our, um, our boys playing a little church basketball league, and uh, God bless church basketball leagues. We've all been there over the years, probably, and our families and friends. And, and our son's playing a little church basketball league. And um, the, the first week of, of this little league in the rec center, I went there with my wife and our, our kids. And, and I was there, and a, a gentleman come up, introduced himself to me. And uh, he, he's a pastor, was a pastor in the Kansas City area. And um, hi, Dr. I want to meet you. And we chatted for a minute. And um, it was pretty clear to me that he was a pretty beleaguered minister. Like He was really down and discouraged. And began to talk, and I just couldn't help feel sorry for the guy. You know, he, he was pretty, pretty beleaguered, pretty beleaguered man. So anyway, over the weeks, Pastor David, he kind of became my ministry project. And so like every week we go on Saturday mornings to these games. You know how it is. You got to have your kids there 30 minutes early. And so I had kind of 20 or 30 minutes to spend. And I, I would find him every week just to check on him. How are you doing? How can I pray for you? What's going on at the church? And, and it, it became like a three-month project for me. And let me tell you, I mean, every week my wife would come find me. Jason, the game's about to start. You got to get over here. She texts me, the game's starting. You got to be here. And so like for three months, this guy was my project. And let me tell you, after three months, months, I was feeling so good about myself. I mean, I was ready to make myself minister of the year because of I had, I mean, if I talked to no one else in the gym that day, I was going to find that guy and talk to him and encourage him. Well, the season was wrapping up and um, I had not only sought to care for him, but I brought another friend of mine into the scene. I said, hey, let's encourage him. And, and anyway, this beleaguered minister after three months, um, my friend mentioned him, said, hey, have you ever considered taking classes at the seminary? And he said, well, I would, you know, but after getting to know Dr. Allen the past several months, it's, I don't, he seems to not care about me. And that's when I realized the old saying, you know, no good deed goes unpunished. It's like, doesn't care about you. All I've done is give you three months of my life. What more could one do to demonstrate care? There's something that, that pricks, right? Something that cuts. When you've given yourself to someone, spouse, a friend, a child, a church member, believe your pastor, but they throw it back at you and say, you don't care. The ex exchange in this boat is mind-blowing. They wake him up. They accuse Jesus of not caring. They rebuke him, indeed, for not caring. Look with me in verse 39. Here we see the sovereign Savior in the boat, verse 39. 
So he got up, and you can imagine Jesus standing up, perhaps wiping the water out of his eyes, pulling his hair back, standing up, observing the creation that he spoke into being, looking at his trembling followers, taking a deep breath as the wind howled by, stirring his legs as the boat rocked, looking with mixed emotions at his disciples, both of compassion and frustration. And he says to the wind, verse 39 says, indeed, he rebukes the wind and he rebukes the sea. And he does so by saying three words in English, hush, be still. That's the polite translation. In the Greek, it more closely reads like the simple statement, shut up. It's the same word in Mark chapter 1, verse 25, when Jesus was teaching in the synagogue. Remember, the demon-possessed man begins to shriek out in the synagogue and confront Jesus. And Jesus rebukes the demon and that man by telling the demon to shut up. It's the same word we see here where Jesus looks at the raging seas and the howling wind and his frightened disciples and the boat sinking. And he stands up and he says, shut up. And you know what happens? Well, Jesus had great timing. The storm was passing anyway, and so after a while, it began to subside. That's not what happened. Jesus says, shut up. And instantly, the wind ceases, and the seas calm. Instantaneously becomes perfectly still. The transformation is instant from a violent storm and from mayhem in the boat to slick his glass and relief and worship in the boat. How was this possible? Because Jesus is the one who spoke all that is into being. Genesis 1 and 2 tells us, Colossians 1, 16 tells us that Jesus was the creative voice. Jesus is the controller of this creation, and there's not one molecule, not one atom outside of his control. And when Jesus tells the waves to cease and the winds to cease, the waves cease and the winds cease. That's how the cosmos works. The Sea of Galilee then, and the storm in your life today. That's how it works. Jesus, we see here, is sovereign over creation. Jesus speaks and creation responds. Jesus commands and the storm obeys. But there is also a thread through here. Stay with me this morning. There's a thread through this passage that is so rich because we not only see Jesus' sovereignty of the storm, we see Jesus' compassion for his children. Jesus looks. His disciples are distraught. And I will tell you, there's a part of me in my flesh, if I were Jesus and was awakened from my sleep and saw their lack of lack of faith and heard their rebuke in my ear to say, well, you don't like this, I'll just crank it up a notch. Right? But Jesus looks on them. He beholds them with love. He sees them in the storm. He hears their cry for rescue. He perceives their need for help. And he silences the storm 
to calm their hearts. Some of you this morning in the room today, no doubt you're here. And the truth of the matter is your life has a storm in it. Truth of the matter is you find yourself on a Sunday dressed appropriately, attending appropriately, worshiping cheerfully, greeting friends and family warmly, but in your heart there's a storm raging. I just want to read a few verses and let the Word of God wash over your heart in this moment. Hear the Word of God, Romans 8, 38. Don't turn there, but Romans 8, 38 and 39. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Hear Philippians 4. Again, don't turn there. Just, just hear it. Receive it in your ears and in your heart. Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7, Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. The peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Again, don't turn there, but listen to Hebrews 13, 5 and 6, and let the Word of God minister to your heart. The author of Hebrews writes, Quoting the Old Testament, he has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. You can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? 1 Peter 5, 7, again, don't turn there. Just listen to it and let it wash your heart. Peter tells us to cast all our anxiety on him, for he cares for us. Brothers and sisters, it really is silly, the things we stress at times. Relationships, money, jobs, health, football coaches, Super Bowls. It really is silly, the things we stress. It becomes really silly if we have eyes of faith and hearts that have been informed by the master we serve. And we're reminded anew that he is not only sovereign, but he is good. He's not only all-powerful, but he is compassionate on his children. And so when you find yourself in that storm, like these disciples found themselves, it's that old gospel song that we need to hear again, to put your hand in the hands of the man from Galilee. To put your hand in the hand of the man that stilled the waters. To put your hand in the hand of the man that calmed the sea. To put your hand in the hand of the man from Galilee. Now notice with me in verse 41, here quickly, we're going to pull this together. Notice verse, excuse me, verse 40. So Jesus, so the disciples rebuke Jesus. Then Jesus rebukes the wind. Then Jesus rebukes the sea. Now Jesus, in verse 40, rebukes the disciples. Again, a lot of rebuking, four rebukes in just a few verses here. And he said to them now, why are you afraid? How is it that you have no faith? What's he doing there? They have seen so much already. I don't have time to walk you through the gospel of Mark here too far. But Jesus' gallery and ministry has been an explosion of miracles. A nonstop demonstration of divine power. 
Moment after moment, teaching after teaching, event after event, gathering after gathering, that everyone who's there can't help but conclude that he's unlike our scribes, he's unlike our rabbis, he's unlike any other man. He's the sovereign son of God. And in this moment, these disciples who've seen so much, their faith is weakened. And Jesus rebukes them. Now notice verse 41. There is a rich word play here. Notice verse 41. They became very much afraid. This word afraid, this word very much here, the Greek word mega. In Latin, it means magna. You've heard someone graduating a magna cum laude, it's that word. In English, it's most commonly translated as, as great. And it shows up three times in our passage this morning. Verse 37, it shows up first when our Bible tells us it's a great storm. It's a mighty gale. Then in verse 39, it shows up again when it says the storm was greatly calm or perfectly calm. It's the same Greek word now. Verse 41, it shows up a third time and it says they are greatly afraid. So what happens in a few verses? They go from being mega afraid of a mega storm to now being mega afraid of the man who just calmed the mega storm. You get it? And they are looking at Jesus, and these disciples are all Jews, and they know the stories of the Old Testament, and they've heard and read about what God did at Jericho, and what God did through Gideon, and what God did to Pharaoh, plague after plague after plague, upending the natural order. And they've heard and read about the disciples crossing the Red Sea, and they've heard about Dryless crossing the Jordan River. They, they've, they've heard all of that, of Yahweh's control over all creation, But at this moment, that power they've heard about all their lives from childhood has shown up in their little fishing boat on the Sea of Galilee. And you bet they're mega afraid. And you bet they begin to worship. And brothers and sisters, this morning as we receive this word, we say with the disciples then, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? And you can imagine... John Mark, recording this story of the inspiration of the Spirit, putting in this letter and sending these believers in Rome, gathering in subterranean death chambers known as catacombs, gathering and meeting in darkness by candlelight and walking around together and hearing the crunch of skeletons under their feet as they gather in huddled fear because their family's being persecuted and their friends have been killed and Christians are serving as lampposts and they're being fed to lions and eaten by feral dogs for sport-like display. And they're wondering, is our faith right? They're wondering, is our Savior powerful? They're wondering, is he worthy of our worship? Is he worthy of our lives? Is he worthy even of our deaths? And they read this account here and they say in their hearts, yes, it is. Yes, he is. I say to you this morning, he's worthy of your worship. I say to you this morning, you can trust him through your storm. I say to you this morning, the authority of scripture, the one who spoke all that is in the being is the one who holds it all together and the one who calmed the storm of the sea of Galilee and the one who is Lord over Every storm, Lord over 
every storm, figuratively or literally, and he's Lord over your storm as well. By faith, you put your hand in the hand of the man from Galilee. 